Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sheila Shoiga. And this is Ready To Be Real Conversations, the podcast series where I chat to people of all walks of life. Some names you'll recognise, others you might not. But my hope is that these conversations will at times inspire, challenge, educate, comfort or simply entertain you. In this episode, I speak to psychotherapist Richard Hogan about family dynamics. The family is the most complicated system you will ever navigate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as the old saying says, goes, childhood lasts a lifetime. And so you come out yeah. of this childhood. Um, but I always think of Carl Jung. I just think he's one of my favourite mm-hmm. psychologists. You know, I say it in the book as a kind of a refrain. You know, you're, you're, you're not what happened to you. You're who you choose to become. Mm-hmm. And that's a really empowering thing. It can be frightening to think that, that you've power over who you are and who you will become. And what I'd always say when I'm sitting with teenagers, I'd always say to them, and adults, but particularly teenagers, is I'd always say, never, never jeopardize or never, like, you know, um, never give away who you might become for the negative thoughts you hold about yourself today. And I go, God, yeah, what do you mean by that? And I say, well, you don't know who you could become yet. Mm-hmm. And that's what the book is about. Originally from Douglas and Cork, he lives in Dublin with his wife and their three daughters. He writes a weekly column with the Irish Examiner and he often appears on TV and radio. Specialising in working with families, he's just released his second book, Home is Where the Start Is, and I found this conversation illuminating. During it, he shares elements of his own upbringing with us and he gives us plenty of tips on how best to navigate our own family dynamics and ultimately help us to live healthier and more authentic lives. I loved it and I hope you will too. Richard Hogan, you're very welcome to the podcast. How are you? Very good, Sheila. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted you're here. I've been an admirer of yours. Whenever I see you on TV shows or hear you on the radio, I'm always thinking that guy is brilliant. Ah, thank you. You're, yeah, you are. You're a great communicator clearly very gifted at what you do but you have a new book out which is right up my street uh, so I'm very much looking forward to getting stuck in disclaimer this book just arrived <laughs> into my paw yesterday 
and you very kindly made yourself available for this. But we've spoken about, so I know we're going to delve into it. And then afterwards, I'm going to inhale it as a read. (laughs) And I can't wait. Uh, So it's called Home is Where the Start Is. How your family made you and how you can make yourself even better. Create the best relationships in your life. And who of us wouldn't want that? Mm. When we start to learn about why we are Mm. the way we are, we realise that so much of it came from our younger years. So bring us back to you as a young lad in Douglas. You were the youngest of three. Two bro- yeah, I was the youngest of three children, two brothers, two, two older brothers ahead of me. Yeah. Um, grew up in Douglas. Um, yeah, my, I, I can see my mother sometimes smiling when, when, if, I'm on an, if I'm on an interview or if she's at a talk. I can see her thinking, how does anyone listen to this guy? Because he was wild. I was pretty wild as a kid. Oh, yeah, yeah I, gave her, I gave her a good run for her money as a kid. Yeah. Um, and that's what the book is kind of about, about how we create identities for ourselves that we kind of maybe struggle with throughout our life to kind of unburden ourselves with. So mm. when I was going to school, let's say, I had dyslexia in the in the 80s. And that was not a time of, you know, student well-being or thinking about maybe this is about learning differently rather than learning disability. Yeah. And so you were seg- you were dif- you were dis- differentiated very quickly from the school system. Now, I'm an ambassador for Dyslexia Ireland now, so I use that as a yes, as I a thing, you. but it certainly disrupted me as a kid because I had two very academic brothers ahead of me who were really smart and, you know, really clued in. And my father was a journalist for the Irish Times, worked for RTE uh, in, in the 60s and 70s and, and then was a Munster correspondent for the Irish Times. So it was a very academic family. You know, dinner times, not knowing things was not a good position to find yourself in, uh, you know. Uh, so you, you had to, you, I always felt like you had to know, you had to know things. You couldn't not know something. And obviously, you know now, obviously, I'm pointing out the obvious, but, you know, what you didn't know then is that you were as intelligent. It was just a different form of learning. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But and of course, that wasn't It took me a long while known. to figure that out. No, I mean, and I spoke to myself very negatively. Even when I went into school, I did a good leaving cert and I did really, it, when I went into university and I started using laptops, that's when things started to change. I was, I often say I was like muted by actually handwriting. Okay, and I, yeah. And I could actually sing with the laptop, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. So okay. when I, when I got into, and I, but I did very well in school, like in saying a lot of, lot of subjects because I just like had the ability to kind of like just grind it out. I didn't have any exemptions for dyslexia or anything. I just kept going. No, I feel crazy, yeah. And so when I went into college, and I get first class, to say first class honours, whatever, even in my first year summer exams in first year college in UCC, the English department wrote to me saying, you know, you came in the top percentile of the class. We'd like you to keep on the subject. My my immediate reaction was, they must be stuck for numbers. That's where my I didn't think, wow, that's brilliant that I achieved that. I was thinking, God, they must be really hard up for people if they're writing to me, because that was the internalised voice that I had, mm. you know, that you're not really that valuable or you're not really that clever you can't be that clever because you're not as clever as your brothers or uh, and teachers would have given me that feedback for sure and that's something that I really kind of like struggled with very early on in my life and you had to work on that I had to work my way out of that sure, it took me sure. a long time now to work that out you know? okay so let's go back to the how that all happened then why was that negative voice of yours so loud and why did you automatically always look for well, oh, we're hardwired. We're yeah, hardwired yeah. for negativity. I mean, sure. that's just the way the species. That's just the way we are. We, you know, it's much more beneficial to our survival to think the noise in the in the wo- woods isn't benign. Yeah. it's better to think yeah. that it's something bad. You know, and so you're looking around for confirmation bias of some something negative that you might hold about yourself, and so that was it. You know, it was it was in school where I got those labels. You know, difficult. While I wouldn't go to school some days, I'd just go into town, or I wouldn't just go in. Or, you know, I'd, I'd be sitting there in the prefabs, prefabs in Cork and Douglas Boys National School. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I was only laughing about this with my kids this morning. I was going in, they were dropping me to the train station with my wife and they were laughing because there was um, 
you know, traffic warden. And I was telling them, I was a traffic, I was a traffic warden of St. Columbus Boys when I was nine. <laughs> and my wife's a primary school teacher. And she's, she's, she was explaining to the kids, that's because he was difficult. You give those jobs to kids <laughs> who are difficult to make them feel included. And I was like, that's exactly what they did. And yeah, I was delighted with my yeah, little role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, so I, I acted out throughout my educational thing. I, I never felt like it had anything to offer me, Sheila. To be honest, I felt so... I knew I wasn't stupid now. I, I knew I was clever, but I didn't think I was like clever as an academically clever, right? But this wasn't just based on the fact that you were dyslexic. Ah, it was a lot of feedback I was getting. You know, I was getting a lot of feedback from the school system. Uh, you know, I was, uh, I, I, I was, you know, in trouble at home a lot. And, and so it was just, there was a lot of negative kind of stuff going on there. My father struggled with addiction. So there was, there was, a, there was a lot of that stuff going on where you're trying to internalize and interpret what's going on around you. And, uh, yeah, I didn't feel connected to anything in those early days. I certainly used to sit there in class, look out the window, and I'd be dreaming about the Beatles. Like, and I'd be thinking about, what, I wonder what John Lennon did in school. I'd be thinking about all this. You know, I'd never felt connected to the lessons that were going on in front of me. Mm. I never felt I was a part of it until I got into fifth class. And I met this incredible teacher, Bridget O'Grady. And she was just the first person who actually saw you. Actually, okay. get a bit, I get a bit emotional when I talk about her because she was the first person who actually saw me, you know. And she said to me one day in an exam, and I was really difficult, you know, coming into her class. I mm. had a terrible reputation of being a difficult student. And uh, I remember she sat me down and she said to me, um, you know, you're very clever, Richard. And I remember this, she said, and you're dyslexic. And I remember thinking, Jesus, can you? T-? And she said, she, she wrote to me, um, I actually wrote, I wrote this, I never spoke because I'm an English teacher as well. Yeah. And I, ne- I never, and I lectured in college and for years, even my clinical work, I'd meet doctors who talk about dyslexia like a, like a secret. I had a doctor there a couple of years ago who was like, I can't wait to retire so I don't have to write hands my prescriptions anymore. Mm. And people I often felt held it like a terrible secret, almost like coming out, let's say, uh, around your identity, you know, yeah, and yeah. people hold that as a part of their identity as like terrible secret to hold. And, I was thinking as I, I write in the exam, Irish examiner every Thursday, I was thinking, I have to write about this. I have to write about the fact, because I've got a platform to write about the fact that I struggled with, you know, dyslexia as a kid. And I wrote about it and I really hummed and hawed, Sheila. I was like, do I want to put this out there? I was like, but you want to be honest about things. You want to help people. And you, if you want to be honest, you have to put yourself out there. Yeah. And so I wrote about the article and I mentioned Bridget, Bridget O'Grady. I said, you know, she was the first teacher to see me. And I, t- I spoke about how she impacted my life. And the next morning I was in my clinic and an email came in and she said hi Richard it's Bridget O'Grady here she said I remember you well you were a beautiful little boy I was honestly I was gone I've never yeah. I, I don't really cry you know yeah. I'm sure it drives my wife mad at times but I'm not really a crier <laughs> yeah. but I was absolutely yeah overwhelmed by that like you know I was sobbing in the clinic it was my lunch break and I was sobbing I was like Jesus and I know yeah. and you know as a therapist you always you're always analyzing what's coming off for you and right. why you're having such a strong reaction to this you know and I was like I never viewed myself as a beautiful little boy you know I always I always always viewing myself as something that I had to hide there was something there that I had to hide and that there was a terrible secret I didn't know what it was but this woman I thought she was a woman. I thought she was ancient. She was 19 or 20. Yeah. You know what I mean? When you're nine, she was ancient. So like, you know, but yeah, this girl yeah. who was just out of her teaching training was clued in. And uh, f- that changed my trajectory for sure because somebody actually started to see and started to value yeah. you. You know, and a lot of my work comes out of that moment. Uh, I went to America in 2021 there on a Fulbright scholarship looking at inclusion. How do we actually include people? Because we talk an awful lot about inclusion, but we, we're not very good at including students and, you know, mm. students who are struggling, let's say financially or academically. We're very good at some parts of inclusion, but really not that good at inclusion across the board. Yeah. 
I grew up in the 80s as well. So I think for people listening who are a bit younger might find that they're not struggling to understand mm. it, but the landscape of that time was in terms of our relationship with with dyslexia was it was seen as a disability a real disability yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, it yeah. was. Yeah. and we've moved on thankfully so much I mean I'm, I'm sure there's still work to be done which is yeah. why you're involved yeah, in the organisation but things have changed so much but back then and again it's not about demonising or blame or pointing fingers but I'm guessing that your parents also were completely conditioned by the societal attitude to dyslexia so yeah. they weren't the ones telling you maybe what the teacher told you later on yeah, which yeah. is ne- what you needed to hear absolutely you weren't necessarily getting that in yeah. the home place they they felt there was something kind of like wrong why isn't he learning at the same speed as the yeah. other guys yeah, you know? yeah, and yeah, that's yeah. kind of like the thing you know that, and that that was in the system and it's still in the system i mean our our education system you know it's it drives me crazy standardized yeah, testing sure. and all that kind of stuff I mean, yeah, of course. it's a very blunt tool to kind of look at a kid's potential yeah and it, it labels kids all the time and yeah. I think in the 80s, it was particularly a label full time, you know, where you were really labeled very heavily, very mm. quickly. And that became your story and your narrative about who you were and what you're capable of and what your potential was. And uh, it does a lot of damage, Sheila. How comfortable are you to talk about your home place? Oh, yeah. I'm a com- uh, when I'm, I mean, I've written about it. Yeah. So, I've, you know. I, but I'm, I'm fully mindful of family members maybe listening and how they might feel. And I know you're very respectful of mm. that also. So I'll be aware of that. And if I cross the line, ask something that sure. I shouldn't ask, you know, we can Thanks, back away yeah. and go up another road, you know. Sure. Um, but you did mention that your dad struggled with addiction. Yeah. For sure, yeah. I mean, we didn't call it addiction. We didn't call it alcoholism. It took a long time. I remember it took me a long time to kind of think along those ideas. But mm. we certainly lived with addiction and alcoholism. Uh, and it was a very difficult um, childhood to experience. Very great childhood in a lot of ways. There was lots of love. My father was a talented, uh, clever guy, but, you know, really struggled with, you know, I think his upbringing. And I think that's why I wrote the book. It was to show the intergenerational patterns that kind of like da- go down the line and they damage and they can, they can be perpetuated and they conti- continue on and on and on. They go these really negative cycles until you become aware of them and you break them. And that's what the book is about, how to break those patterns, how yeah. to see what happened to you and then how to break free from them because I'm a very positive person and I use everything that I've been through as a real, I never look at myself as a victim or anything negative. I always look at it and say, that was actually, now I'm an ambassador for dyslexia. That's a superpower that I got there. You know, I can see when I'm working with students, uh, you know, how to work your way through that, how to help them with their thinking, everything. Yeah, sure, because you, you get know, it. Yeah, I get it, exactly. And so, you know, he struggled and that's why I really wrote the book is to kind of maybe help somebody else out there who struggled because when there's, when there's addiction present in the family, there's loads of secrets in a family. And the family is the most complicated system you will ever navigate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as the old saying says, goes, childhood lasts a lifetime. And so you come out yeah. of this childhood. Um, but I always think of Carl Jung. I just think he's one of my favorite mm-hmm. psychologists. You know, I, I say it in the book as a kind of a refrain. You know, you're, you're, you're not what happened to you. You're who you choose to become. Mm-hmm. And that's a really empowering thing. It can be frightening to think that, that you've power over who you are and who you will become and what I'd always say when I'm sitting with teenagers I'd always say to them and adults but particularly teenagers is I'd always say never never jeopardize or never like you know um, never give away who you might become for the negative thoughts you hold about yourself today and they're going god yeah what do you mean by that and I say well you don't know who you could become yet mm-hmm. and that's what the book is about I didn't know who I could become Yeah, I struggled for a long time with the idea of who I might become and that's what the book, the book is like my story is embedded into the book to show that actually it's the theory and practice mm-hmm. that if you change your thinking and if you kind of 
move away from some of the negative ideas that you hold about yourself, anything is possible, Sheila. And I truly believe that. What you've just said there now, Richard, in the last few minutes is is really after landing with me in a massive way. And I think for people listening, whether you're on the path of kind of looking at at your own behaviours and where they might come from. Mm. And it's not, again, it's not about blame. It's just about seeing it, opening Mm. your eyes, seeing where you're at and perhaps making alterations because a lot of people maybe don't even realise yeah. why they behave the way they behave. Absolutely. I mean, that's it. Well, I mean, you're a prisoner to your behaviours until you become aware of them. Yeah. And here's the next thing, Sheila. You go into college and you meet someone at the college bar and you don't even think about the person you're meeting. All of a sudden you end up in a relationship with them and then you're having kids and, you're in, and you never actually thought about, I wonder what my early attachments were like, but more importantly, I wonder what his or her early attachments yeah. were like and I wonder what they're like when pressure comes on us and I wonder what they're going to be like if things come into the family that aren't so great and you don't think about those things, but they're kind of important things yeah, to be thinking. they are. They absolutely are. Important are. things to be thinking about, you know, is this person going to be a good ally when things get tough here? And that's kind of like what the book is like. A, it's kind of like a guide. When I was setting up the idea of the book, it was like a guide for all your relationships mm. to look at the early relationships for sure and to see what drives you but to become more aware of what drives others in your life as well yeah yeah and and it's, I suppose as you said as well it's not just about your own upbringing and what you know how <clears throat> your own caregivers were with you as you grew up but perhaps it's how their parents were with Absolutely. them and back again and it's, the generational stuff it's is huge. massive and it's so and I, I, I tr- I, I'm hoping that I'm compassionate to my father because I have a lot of compassion for him sure and it took me a while to really think, am I going to tell this story? Um, and I did say that to you before we started to record. It's, I think it's incredibly brave and, I, and I'm very grateful to you for doing it because I do feel from chatting to a lot of different people is, and I don't know, and you would know mm. a lot more than me because this is what you do for a living. But is it an Irish thing or is it just a, is it a, just a human thing that we are very secretive? We don't it, like to yeah, talk about it publicly. We, do, we don't like to talk about the truth of our, our family. And I would say, absolutely. And I, that, that, that extract came out in the Irish exam last Saturday and I received an incredible amount of emails mm. um, to say thank you for voicing my story growing up in Ireland. I, and they were calling, the, uh, about 10 people called it a traditional Irish upbringing. It's the opening to the book, you know, it's the yeah. extract from the opening where I'm outlining where I, where I where all these ideas kind of came from and my own experience as a child growing up and the secrets in the family and that. And a lot of people got onto me and a lot of people who are, you know, well known let's say got onto me to say you know this is this is my childhood and it mm. did and this idea of like you know sure did them no harm was quite damaging and that's for sure but the book is about how to take that mess let's say that's what I kind of call it at the start and to thrive through it and not to collapse under it but how to thrive out of it because that's ultimately the message of the book is that it's really positive that we can have yeah. this negative experience but there are ways out of it and look what you you're doing not just I suppose for your own family dynamic yeah, which is a positive yeah, but for yeah. For those you see, um, you know, in your practice as well. Okay, let's start with one of the first sections in the book is the genogram. That's right. The genogram. Yeah. What is it? (laughs) Why do we need to know about it? Yeah. Well, the genogram is probably one of the most important tools I'd work with as a systemic family psychotherapist. Okay. And so what you talked about there, Sheila, was the intergenerational patterns that can be present in a family. And it's incredible when you see it. So the genogram is basically like, um, you know, what what are the... Family uh, tree? Family tree, exactly. But it looks at at patterns and it looks like beliefs in the family. 
family. It looks at values in the family. Mm. And so it's a much, much more sophisticated family tree, let's say, because it's looking at the beliefs and, and the patterns that are going down through the family. And it can be one of the most striking moments in a therapeutic session where you draw the person's genogram and you go back up to the generations and they see that, let's just say for addiction, it's addiction. My grandfather was an addict. I'm not saying mine was, no, but I'm saying hypothetically in, yeah, the, yeah. in the genogram, my grandfather was an addict, my father was an addict, and I struggled with alcohol and I can see it coming down through the generations or what I've actually worked with a lot is that my grandmother got pregnant very early my mother got pregnant very early and I got pregnant very early in my life and you can see this stuff going yeah. down through the generations right and wow. it's yeah. it is in, an incredible thing to work with and it's the, it's the it's the fundamental starting point of therapeutic kind of conversations having a look at where you know because we don't none of us just you know, arrive with all these beliefs and these values and these ideas and these biases and these prejudices because we all have them. They're given to us as we come through the world, you know. I mean, that, that's what's taught to us. That's what's templated for us, what we'd call it like modelling. And so we we arrive into our adolescence with all of these things modelled for us, all mm. these templates that play out in our head. And so we try to figure out very early where do they come from? You know, how do you think the way you think? We, I'd look at personality traits, the big five, you know, all that kind of stuff. I'd look at those and I'd look What's at... What's the big five? The big five personality traits of mm. agreeableness, conscientiousness, openness, extroversion and neuroticism. They're the big five personality traits. Okay. And then I'd look at the um, early attachments. And so if you spell that out, spell, I often think it spells sad, right? So your early attachments, so it's like secure avoidant, anxious or dysfunctional. And three of those cause huge problems and one of those is pretty positive. Yeah. And most people are on the anxious, you know, avoidant or dysfunctional kind of side of attachment. You know, and um, that's what the book, the book sets that out very early, what those are mm. looking at the genogram. And so the genogram spells out, what was my early attachment like with my early primary giver? What was that like? That causes huge problems for us, Sheila. There's no doubt that's in play, that's at play in all of our relationships. And if our primary caregiver, because if you think about it, a child is born about two years too early. And so, you know, the, mm. the reason for that is, is because the needs of the child would outweigh the needs of the mother and both would die if the child stayed for another, say, 15 months, let's say. Yeah. And so they, the reason why that is, is because, uh, you know, the reason is just the baby would be too big and couldn't pass through the birthing canal. So the baby is moved out at nine months and the needs of that baby are incredible. I mean, a baby, you know, you've had children, uh, I have had three daughters, you can see it for yeah. about four years nearly. The needs are so great. Yes. And so everything in that child's world, even in this pre-verbal part, is to get close proximity to the primary caregiver. And if that is not nurturing and caring and secure, it can cause all sorts of um, you know, fault lines in how the child understands love and how the child receives love and how the child gives love. Right. So when we start looking at this, because what I have found talking to people is that like no family is perfect. No family is perfect. It Absolutely. doesn't exist. It does not exist. And, and even though I'm trying my best to, to, to be okay, I often, you know, put my head in the pillow at night and go, geez, I was very cranky with Kyle <laughs> or... You know, I, I snapped yeah. there. Sure, or, me too. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I and I, I and I kind of go like, gotta do better, gotta do better. And I, you know, it's that classic: if you know better, you do better. But then various different ingredients happen, and you're a bit tired, you're a bit stressed, and you, know and you lash out. You know what, Julie? Being okay is okay too. You know, yeah. Some days you're okay. Yeah. You're not the best version of yourself, but yeah. that's okay. Yeah, none of us are perfect. And, and I think there's an awful lot of pressure on parents. I think I really feel for parents, modern parents, because there's so much pressure on you to be a psychotherapist now and a clinical psychologist <laughs> and to be, you know, to be all these things. And it's like, you know, 
sometimes just been okay and even being a bit below that some days is is fine because that's the business of life and then there's an awful lot of pressure on us too because we look at our let's say i think for women when i work with a lot with women in my clinic they feel the pressure of how their mothers had the time to be with them you know and to raise them and now that the way society is and the pressures on both members of the of the parenting you know there is so great that it's you different have to, now isn't it, it is massively different and and there's huge guilt and and shame around. And I also say to parents, you know, that's and particularly women, that's that's a position you got to move out of. You're, yeah. you're, you know, you've got this incredible pressure on you, and yeah. don't parent from a position of guilt and shame. You got to, you know, you got to understand that this is an incredibly different time than was the seventies or eighties. Yeah, for and sure. The pressures on us are incredible. Yeah, yeah. And thanks for saying that because sometimes it does feel like I, I certainly feel like that sense of failure and I do have to try and have a word with myself as well because I understand how massive, yeah. they can drag you down they don't they don't they don't serve any positive purpose no. um, but you can't help but feel that way sometimes no, that yeah. well I'm not spending enough time with my kids or the work is not getting done right or the house is not tidy yeah, enough nowhere. and all of these things yeah, yeah you're not doing anything right you exactly. know? so I've got into a TV show and the reason I'm mentioning it is it's all about dysfunction okay. succession right have you seen it? Oh, Succession. Yeah, yeah, I have seen. I have. I'm so busy at the current. I don't really watch too much TV. It's anymore. absolutely brilliant. My wife loves it. it. It's it's all about <clears throat> dysfunctional family who happen to be absolutely loaded. Yeah, yeah. But the the, the, the story is is effectively dysfunction. Yeah. So it's fascinating and it's it's brilliant. I think you'd appreciate it. Um. So this book is for people who want to learn more about themselves and do better. Yeah. Whether Absolutely. they have kids or not, and it's for it's not like just a parenting book. That's for, you know, it's really not a parenting yeah. book. You could read this book at sixteen, seventeen, or anything. Get something out of about you know your relationships going forward, how you think right now. I mean, it's across the board. That's why that's why I wrote it and I embedded my own story into it to watch, kind of see the theory come mm. alive and how you move past maybe some negative. We've all had whether there's all dysfunctional families, but we've all had negative experiences in our lives. And we yeah. that voice up there, Sheila, is the most important relationship you'll ever have with anybody in your life. Mm. And it's like you got to get that right because all the research would say this is the only time. This is the only. This is the only dance that we do here. This is it. There's no other life. This is this is what all the research would point to. And if we get that voice right, we can thrive in it. And I think a lot. A lot of the time, you know, we're we're just drenched in negative thoughts. We're drenched in like worry, and we believe that, to, especially in the Irish context, to worry brings about a future positive outcome. And I'm always saying to people, worry doesn't change any future outcome. No. It only ruins the present. Absolutely. You know, and it's like you got to work those kind of ideas out and work out your early attachments and start to actually bring more positive thinking into your life. And then you'd start seeing things change massively. Mm-hmm. What I've noticed is <clears throat> how I have, I've seen and heard, obviously not my one and a half year old, she's not that mm. <laughs> linguistic just yet. But with my boy, I have noticed him saying things. And I'm like, wow. That's me or that's his mm, dad. Mm, absolutely. And sometimes he's seven, that can be, is he? He's nearly six. Nearly six. And it, sometimes that can be good. And yeah. Sometimes it's, oh, okay. Yeah. And we have to be very careful how we, how we model our reaction to stuff. Yeah. yeah. I, I do it with my own kids. I do it like, you know, there's two kind of types of cognition, hot cognition and cold cognition. So hot cognition is when you're like emotionally led and you're freaking out. And you reacting. can't find the keys to the car, let's say, or you can, whatever it is. And you're reacting to it. And then your kids watch you do that. And then they think, well, that's how you react when you're stressed. Yeah. And so it's very good to do is to in role model that when you're cold, you know, when there's, I do it for my kids. I come in and say, where did I put, where did I put the keys? I need to get, I, I'm in a rush here now. Where's the keys? And I go through, and I can see them thinking he's up to some of his voodoo stuff here. Like, you know, he's doing some psychology with us. And I'd say, where's the keys? My jacket was upstairs last night. I had it in my jacket upstairs. I'll go up and check. And I'm talking out loud. Like, no, they're not in my jacket. And I come back down and go, actually, I was reading a book. I think I left them over by the, the library there. And I go, oh, there's the keys. 
And then next week, my daughter's looking for her necker for scouts, and I can hear her going, "Where did I put this, the necker last week?" That's a brilliant tip. And so you're just I'm helping them to critically respond yeah. to stress. So they're thinking, well, if I shout and roar and scream at the world and think, God, I'm being smited by that God up there, that's how they're going to react to it. Mm. And so when you, you know, I'd always, as a parent, be role modeling things for them and helping them to analyze, you know, and critically analyze what's going on around them because they're going to, they're going to experience a lot of stress in their lives. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I'm already, thank you. I'm taking a lot of tips <laughs> here, Richard. I'm loving it. Um, let's talk about the influence of the family because I know you mm. have sections in the book and that's a big section yeah. because it's all whether about we read, yeah, that's it. Yeah, my own family, my own, my influence on my own family. Is mm. it, yeah. Well, my grandmother came to live with, see, it's, it's such a complicated story mm. and that's why I didn't revisit for a long time when I met my girlfriend I was in my early, you know 20s early 20s and you know we got married and I didn't even talk about it I remember one day I was watching a documentary on Rory Gallagher I love Rory Gallagher and he was like my dad was a journalist and knew Rory Gallagher and okay. so I admired my dad so much at the same time and Rory used to ring the house and all that kind of stuff oh, and right. I'd be talking to him on the phone I'd be telling him I'm learning the guitar and you know it was just it was kind of like that kind yeah. of thing was going on also and I remember watching a documentary and it was a 1974 tour and my father was interviewing him right. and I hadn't spoken to my dad in 10 years you know, and I just okay. became so emotional because I was like so conflicted with like, I admire this guy to be sitting there with Rory Galler and interviewing him. And yet I really, at that point, disliked this guy because he brought so much mm-hmm. pain into our lives. But, um, and so, yeah, I, I found, I find, I found thinking about it in my 20s very hard. I couldn't kind of do it. But before I had a child in my early 30s, and I, I, I knew I had to go back and start revisiting this stuff and, and dealing with because it, it was so complicated my grand came to live with us for 20 years she was great crack great fun great Irish cork woman like just full of fun like you know and a great laugh and so that part of the family was great sometimes the family functioned brilliantly really nice good fun the parents would take you out of school if it was sunny I do that with my kids now if it's sunny I'd say forget going to school there yeah, guys let's yeah, go yeah, to the beach yeah, whatever yeah. Which isn't too often in Ireland, but um, not for the week that's in it. But um, so it was a complicated story, Sheila. Mm. And then it all functioned very badly, you know, and there was really bad moments of like, you know, what happens with addiction, Uh, chaotic moments, dysfunctional moments, a lot of fighting, a lot of aggression. Um, You know, uh, you never really were certain about what kind of environment you were walking into. Mm-hmm. I used to always walk up in this hill in Grange Aaron and I'd stand on my toes to see if the car was there. If the car was there, I meant my dad was home, so I'd, you know, my stomach would sink. And if the car wasn't there, I'd be thinking, oh, oh well, good. Uh, you know, at least I'd be able to have hang around the house for a while, watch TV for a little bit. So that there was all that kind of inconsistent dynamic where you felt really uncertain about things. And then when you get a bit older, mm-hmm. let's say 14, 15, you start maybe going out with girls and you go into someone else's house. And you see how their family is. I remember asking one of my first girlfriends, does your dad scream and shout and slam doors? And she was looking at me like I had two heads kind of going, you know, no. And I was like, oh, mine doesn't either. You know, but I was I was yeah. just so taken by the fact that, yeah. you know, that's how you begin to see actually that's what you consume, consider to be normal. Isn't actually that yes. that normal. And so it was really inconsistent. That was the probably thing I'd say the biggest. There was a lot of... I outlined in the book a lot of really serious problems mm. and then there was a lot of real love and joy and fun in there as well so it was just a very inconsistent dynamic but I suppose one of the most important things that we all need to feel but particularly as children is a feeling of safety mm. a feeling that your home is your safe haven yeah. and that often can't it is not the case 
depending on various different um you're dead right and you know what Sheila I still get that feeling from time to time it's it's, a, it's a, yeah and I try to explain it to my wife who came out of a very secure you know family mm. um it's like the only way I can explain it, it's like there's a stranger upstairs who's like you know not well intentioned and you just don't know where they are and it's that feeling of like some something not being safe you yeah. know something some presence and I had that throughout my childhood mm. all the way through my childhood there was a sense that anything could go wrong here at any second so you're always kind of on eggshells for sure life is full of what ifs some awesome like what if ai could fold your laundry and some well less awesome like what if you have unexpected medical costs united healthcare can help get you covered with health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans they supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. So out of the, you know, the what was it again sad yeah out of the were attachments you, yeah were you the anxious kid um, where did you fall into that it would have been probably more avoidant I would, uh, right. I would say you know um, where you knew that you had to behave a certain way to stay within the parameters of being cared for kind okay of. right you know? yeah. so you had to kind of almost be constantly wondering about what you needed to be like you know, in order to kind of receive, kind right. of like, you know, so you yeah. had to shape shift a little bit. And I work with a lot of people with that. And when I say it to them, they're like, my God, that's exactly me. I've always shape shifted to suit the relationships I'm in. I don't feel any way authentic. I never feel connected to people because I'm always trying to please them. And then eventually I end up walking away from it because it's just too bloody hard to do it. Yeah. Does that um, relate to where you came in the family? I'm just curious to know, because yeah. I know you speak about... Yeah, the family you know, the position. eldest, yeah, 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 the youngest and, and the different, I suppose, you, there's kind of, there's traits that are associated yeah. with the different types exactly. depending where you well, fall in the family. Say for women, and I work, as I said to you, I work a lot with women and um, 47.2, Sheila, is our most unhappy year, right? As human beings, 47.2 is our most unhappy year and a lo- there's a load of reasons for that. But with women, when I'm looking at this, what I'd see is that Women generally tend to have higher traits of agreeableness. Again, that comes out of the desire, out of the need of the child. So you have to be agreeable. And when that child is so desperately, you know, needy for the mother, who's generally going to be the primary caregiver, to not be agreeable would be detrimental to the evolution of our species. You know, we, you know, if we didn't put the needs of the child before our own, because think about the needs of that child, it's so 
massive. And so if, when we put the needs of the child before our own, they survive and they thrive and they move on and the species continues. But what I see in, for, in mid-40s, what can happen to women an awful lot is that they have high levels of agreeableness and then they're the eldest in the family and so they get positioned. And I see I've got three daughters and I can see myself. It's a powerful force. It's almost like the way I always feel it. It's like, it's like the event horizon of a, of a black hole. It just sucks you into it, right? As a parent, you're kind of going... I said to my eldest daughter, Hannah, can you, and I can see me, my, I can see me putting responsibility on her. Yeah. And I can see she's very agreeable. And I can see myself thinking, she's such a good girl. I can hear myself saying that. And then I can, because I'm talking to clients all the time going, and I was, I actually, I was giving a talk in a, a firm recently. And I was saying, if you're the eldest daughter and, you know, you get, you have high levels of agreeableness, this is what would be said about you. You're a good daughter, good sister, good mother good wife mm. and so that's going to position you and one woman put her hand up and she said that was actually my father's speech at my wedding <laughs> she's a good daughter a good sister and a good mother and a good wife and you know and and, and um, that's kind of like how we get positioned yeah very quickly is that uh, and and that's suffocating i would imagine well in your mid-40s you realize it's actually unattainable because your parents yeah. are elderly and now you're yeah. being a good daughter to them and then your kids are probably in their teenage years or moving up there and so now you know they might require more and so you're stuck doing all these roles and it's absolutely burnout stuff yeah you know and then you might have the menopause going on as well at the same time and so you've got all of these things going on and so i think for women mid-40s can be a really tricky time mm. and it doesn't get spoken about too much and that idea of the good mother the good sister the good, the good wife the good daughter doesn't really get spoken about you know too much about how to actually and i say this to clients it's kind of funny i often say this i, t I talk to you know when i'm talking to women and working with them i would say to them you're going to have to get comfortable now with the discomfort of others this is not selfishness, this is self-care. Yeah. You know, and often by the third session, you know, she might say to me, my husband would like me to stop the sessions. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm bringing in an important thing into my life, which is, no, yeah. I don't think I'm going to do that now. I think that's maybe something you need to do. Mm. And there's, there's a thing called homeostasis, which is balance. Mm. And all systems fall into balance because I'm a systemic psychotherapist. So all systems are, you know, maintained by balance. Mm. And so when you change... That's going to disrupt the balance. Yeah. But I always say, hang tough now. That's what you're meeting now is homeostasis fighting you. But that's good. But, you know, now you know you're bringing in change because you're disrupting it. Because if it didn't change, you're maintaining the balance as it is. And so you have to disrupt the homeostasis, but it will fall into a new balance, which is far healthier for you. And so stay the course there. So whether that's a romantic relationship, your own family that Absolutely. you've created, yeah. or your family of origin, it is possible to do it. And I think that's or yourself. A really... Or yourself, yeah, yeah. Talking to yourself. It's interesting how, and, and also like this kind of work, it ain't easy. Mm. Yeah. And when you start to, um, and if somebody listening is only just starting to maybe see things a bit differently or um, maybe isn't at all, but maybe after this conversation is going to start to question things yeah. and look at it. Yeah. But when you do start to see that things are different and it's, again, it's not about blame or whatever. It is what it is. Like we all have, we're all products of so many different factors, but you know, when you start looking at yourself and, and realizing what you want out of your own life, mm. um, yeah, it might, other people might be, get a bit annoyed that you're doing Changing, things a yeah. bit different. Because this is the thing, and this is, I, I notice this myself, my own family, but this is absolutely the thing. When you start to change and you're changing, people have a very clear idea of who you are, Sheila. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? And that's we your, get labeled, that's don't we? That's your box, yeah. Go back into the box. That makes life so easy. 
easy for me to think about this is who Sheila is this is who Richard is this is who whoever John is right and so the minute you start to shift that or change that or introduce people to a new idea of who you might be they will want to go back in there you know because that's really easy for me to understand because the reason we do it it's generally not out of like a, a desire to be really mean to somebody but it just the the complicated computations that we have to go through at any time to comprehend what's actually going on is so great that we're, we like to make things familiar to ourselves and we're constantly filtering out stuff so you're mm. you're a good person you're compassionate you're kind he's wild he's this he's that it just helps us in a family system that is so bloody complicated to make sense of it very quickly yeah he's the youngest he's wild the middle is a bit forgotten there and the eldest is really responsible and that's kind of how we talk in general terms there about our kids and I always say to parents if you want to change your child and how they talk about themselves speak about them differently when they're listening because they're always listening to you. When you're on a call and you speak about your child and say, you, you say, he's a brilliant kid, he's so smart, you'll start to see him acting into that into that label because when we start calling them negative things, they will also act into that label. And it's really important how we talk about our kids. Yeah, I mean, I'm obviously listening to you mm. and thinking of how I speak about my own kids. And I had it earlier, I recorded mm. a, a podcast earlier and I was saying that, you know, already we've noticed that our one and a half year old is, is it, she's a little wild. <laughs> but I meant good. it as a compliment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's fearless. Yeah. She's just, you know, climbing up and everything, wanting just to experience everything. Just be careful when everything. she gets a bit more cognizant yeah. that you're not saying she's wild, this one. Yeah. Because she'll act out that paradigm f- Yeah, because she'll fall into that, that, that label. That will be her identity. Because we're all looking for identities in the family system because, again, it's so complicated. And when we hear our parents speak about us, that gives us our identity, good or bad. And then we live that out for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I meet parents, I, I meet adults in my clinic who might be 64 or 5, whatever. And I'd say to them, how long have you been thinking that about yourself? And they'd say, probably since I've been about 7. You know? Right. And 7 or 8 is really a crucial period of how we write that story about who we are. Okay, yeah. And that voice, you mentioned the voice mm. before, you know, that, that voice that we all have and mm. some of us have multiple voices, <laughs> depending on the situation we're in. But that negative voice that is sometimes there, sometimes a voice and, and a comment can come out of us and it's not even ours to begin mm. with. No, that's what I'd say. Absolutely, she did such a good insight there because that's what I meet in my clinic all the time. And they say, well, I'm just a bit of a loser. I'm just a bit of a... It's like, whose voice is that? Yeah. And then they're struck by that. They mean, by that's my voice. I'm like, no, no, that's not your where voice. Where did that come from? Where, where, where did you first introduce... Where were you first introduced the idea that you're not that good or you're not that competent or you're not that funny or you're not that attractive or you're not that whatever? Where did you get that idea from? And I trace it back to the genogram and you, you kind of pinpoint it. And I'd often say, when you were six, did you think you weren't that good? No, no, I was... When you were eight, and so you, you find out where it was, where it developed, and then mm. you realize, actually, that's a corrupted... That's a corrupted voice that's living rent free there in the most important real estate I have here. And it's going around and it's telling me some desperate things. I'll get found out. I'm not that good. People will see through me. All of those things that we think about. I'm not that valuable. All those things that are in there, we can pinpoint where it came from and start to kind of like deconstruct it and start to write a better, healthier idea. Because yeah. the way I always say the thoughts are like the smell in the house. You don't realize they're gone off. Until you, you know, until you, uh, until a stranger walks and kind of goes, Jesus, open the windows there, and so you're just living in that smell. You don't know it's actually not good. It's not yeah. you. It's it's just the thing over there that's you know not so good. That's how our thoughts are, mm-hmm. and we can be positive in our thoughts. Yeah, yeah it can be. Can. It can be. You know, what I noticed, uh, Sheila, it can be quite scary for someone to think that. Yeah, because your negative thoughts become almost familiar and almost like a friend to you. Yes. Jesus, what would it be like for me to thrive? What would it be like for me to think something positively? Because if I think nothing good ever happens, well, then I can't get hurt when nothing good happens. 
And like that's not living there. Yeah, that's living. You're hurting yourself all the time. Yeah, your self fulfilling prophecy. You're living out the paradigm that you're that you're struggling with. Yes. Yeah. So in in dysfunctional families, there are certain roles. Am I right in thinking there are certain roles that can be you know given to people? I I I've I've read about. It, I find mm. it fascinating. Would, is that something that you work Absolutely, with? Absolutely, yeah, uh, for sure. Often uh, the, the, it's a very interesting dynamic, and I did that when I was. My parents said to me when I was fifteen, sixteen, uh, when my mom did anyway. I think maybe you should go see a psychiatrist because I was feeling crap, you know, and I just mm. just wasn't connected to things. Felt really low and all the rest of it, and so often. A child, this is the theory behind it, the identified patient they used to call it in the, in the systemic literature, the, identif- the, the identified patient can manifest the issues that are going on in the family. So often children, parents bring children, this is the ironic part, ch- parents bring children to a psychiatrist, but in fact the child is bringing the family to the psychiatrist. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I meet yeah. that an awful lot in my clinic. And so when I'm presented with parents who are kind of going, you know, Sarah, Sarah's fi- fixer. Mm. I'd often get that Sarah's got a problem here. Can you fix her? And so all that theory, my own personal experience, all of that is present in those moments. And it can be a massively disappointing moment for the parents when they realize, I mean, disappointing is the wrong word there, but it can be uh, illuminating yeah, yeah. And, and shocking, let's say, moment when they realize, actually, this isn't Sarah's issue. This is a family issue here. Yes. And we all need to look at this thing and how we're interacting with each other. But it happens, doesn't it, that... That as somebody in a family can be singled out, as it were, or be yeah, the, as, the, the, as the cause, the yeah, blame, the blame, this ba- is the this black sheep, the, the black sheep, the, 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 the child. The sc- I mean, that's what happens massively with school and families. Mm. I often work. You know, I work in schools. There's, there's nothing more powerful than the joint system of school and family to come together and say Sheila's difficult. Yeah. The school says Sheila's difficult. We can't manage her. The parents say Sheila's difficult. We can't manage her. Boom, Sheila, when they come together. Perfect storm. A perfect storm to label you for the rest of your life as, as difficult and problematic and something, you know, wrong inside you. Mm. And that's an incredible thing to kind of, you know, come to kind of think about yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So you had you had a lot to unravel, really, mm. which is what drew you to the type of work that you do now, Absolutely. obviously. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. And I could always, when I, I started off teaching, first of all, I yeah. did English and psychology in my primary degree. And then I moved off into um, English and... I connected with kids very quickly and I'd always really connect with the troubled child, you know, because yeah. I could see myself there yeah. and I'd give, try to help them with their ideas. And then that's why I worked back into theory, get some theory behind what I'm doing with, with children and I'm working with them. And it just kind of came out of that. And I'm also very practical thinking. And I I think I'm good at breaking down theory and making it accessible. Yeah. That's kind of like the thing that I love to do is like read heavy material, read heavy theory and then distill it all down and then deliver it in an analogy that makes perfect sense to yes. people so parents can go wow that's easy to understand because a lot of the literature when I was reading it and I, and I read I read so much you know on this stuff I'd say that's grand for me like as an academic but how the hell could a parent or you know someone who's just trying to read this book and, and think it's it's really often written for tier, for peer review it's often written for like ego mm. you know to say wow he's a brilliant theorist there that's really theor- theoretical but no, that's not what I'm after. I'm, I'm trying to write a, write a book that's actually for me. Yeah, for, for all of listening. us. Yeah, yeah. That for, we can we can take. You can read that at seventeen us. and go, wow, that's, there's some stuff there that I really can to relate to. Or seventy or fifty yeah. relationships. It's just across the board, kind of. That concept of the scapegoat or the black sheep mm. can manifest not just in childhood, but also in with older children, yeah. with older parents. Mm-hmm. It can still exist. It's yeah. not something that necessarily goes away. No, absolutely, and it can. I mean, one of the big things that comes out of dysfunction is that siblings have really difficult relationships. 
yeah. hugely problematic relationships and they try to coat it over and what they generally do is avoid each other because they're too much of a reminder of the dysfunction you grew up in. Mm. And so that, that can last and, and your sibling relationship is the longest relationship you have with anybody in this planet. And it's like so sad when that is disrupted and the majority, I was only talking to someone a minute ago who said to me her relationship with her sister was fantastic. And she was like, but none of my friends have that relationship with their sister. And I'm thinking the majority of people struggle with their siblings because of all of the stuff that comes out of being in a family system, the competitiveness, the comparison is the thief of joy stuff. Yeah. And parents labeling kids and building resentment, resentment with their children and, and, you know, making yourself feel deficit, the deficit you feel. And I, I meet this all the time, Sheila, and it's so sad. Yeah. Where I see a kid sitting there, definitely my own story is coming up and a kid says to me, I meet this now every day in my clinic, who says mm. to me, you know, I'd say, you know, out of 10, where are you in the scale? 10's happy and one is not so happy. They'd say, oh, two or three. I'm sitting in front of a brilliant young yeah. man or young girl and I'm like, you know what, why are you so low? Why is there seven missing there? Like, well, I'm just not as smart as my brother or, you know, I'm just not as good as my sister or my sister's got this, my brother's this or, and it's all that comparative stuff. That yeah. really is the thief of our joy. It, it is such, and parents do it unfortunately by mistake. I think, or what I always say to parents is, when you're telling your kids you love them, don't say I, I love you all the same. I say because that makes it competitive. Uh, what I'd say to them is, I love you the same amount for different reasons. And I've heard my children. No, that's a, that's yeah. a that's a that's a bombshell. Yeah. I think for me. Yeah, yeah. Because I would have thought that that was a very innocent statement. To it say, is I an love innocent you, statement, but I've same. analyzed that statement myself, and yeah. I, I, I look at all these ideas and I tear them down. And if you tell your child that you love them the same, but you're, you're all different, but, but you're, they're, I love they're, you they're for different, different reasons. Yeah, that yeah, takes yeah. away the competitive aspect. Of course, of it. it does when you say it like that. And I've heard, uh, 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 this is a true story. Now I've heard my little, my little, my doe, Lizzie, who's like nine now. Um, I've heard her talking to the younger girl, and I've heard, as I've come up the stairs. And I've heard her saying that, but dad loves us for different reasons. I think he loves it. And she's telling me about what, you know, and I just thought Brilliant. there, there's there how, you take, how you take well out the competitive aspect That's of great. love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. we're all unique. We're all We're different. all unique, yeah. Is it true that there's usually one person in the family that whether, no, some families never get to the point of wanting to look at it or even we'll see it and we'll just continue this to, yeah. to, you know, act out the same patterns in future generations if there are are future generations. But for those who maybe want to, you know, um, upset the apple cart, mm. is it is it is it true that there can usually be just one, or are more, or will there be more? Like it can never happen that people come together and go right. We see it. We don't want this anymore. Let's all start having robust conversation, <laughs> healthy robust conversation. <laughs> Christmas dinner after a few drinks. <laughs> Let's have a robust conversation. So, but is it true that when it happens, that sometimes it's it's one person that'll put the foot out and say, "Look at put their head up of the parapet." Yeah, and say, exactly. Yeah, this is mad the way we've been doing this. And then it's like, what is he well, or she saying? Here's the thing, Sheila. We get. I think what happens to us is we all get pulled into playing some sort of play in some sort of role, mm. and our role has been written for us. And we go into our dynamics with our siblings, and we leave thinking that was utterly superficial and it was utterly meaningless. Mm. And I didn't. They didn't meet Sheila, and I didn't meet Mary, and Mary didn't meet Sandra, and we all left playing this role. It's what Freud would call the compulsion to repeat. We're just playing this thing out and out and out, and you leave utterly dejected. Mm. Right, and you're kind of going, "What the hell is that? Yeah. We've got such a short period of time here." What yeah. the hell is that? So you, you, we all get stuck at times playing these roles. But there are only roles and we can break free. And sometimes it does take one person to stand up and say, look, we're caught here in this dynamic. How about 
we start again a little bit here and start thinking about introducing each other to you know who we are. I'm not what you thought I was as a child. That yeah. was me as a child. And I, I, I know for sure my mother's kind of looked at me over the years thinking, God, who's this guy? Who's this guy? Yeah, yeah. Who's this guy? And I know my brother's probably thought, who's this guy? Because I thought I had him figured out there. But he's, you know, a different guy than what I met as a kid. Um, but and I think that's it. We're, we all get caught in these roles but we're not prisoners to them. And the moment we become yeah. aware of them, the moment you walk out of that room thinking, God, that was awful, that was so meaningless. You're never, you're not a prisoner now anymore walking and just playing it out. Mm. You know, and that's yeah, why, yeah, yeah. and you can disrupt it. Yeah. And it can be very unsettling for people in that play to hear it because they know it too or, or might be actually freeing because they might say, God, that's exactly how I feel. I, I, I leave those conversations totally dejected because I don't talk about what I want to talk about either. I'm just mm. playing out this, this idea of who you think I am. Yeah. Yeah. And that's it, I suppose. You Authentic- know. Well, what we're talking about is authenticity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course it is. And we're always evolving. We're always changing. Yeah, and we're allowed to change. We're well, allowed. We'll never stop changing. Yeah. And it's actually a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. It's the great thing. We, we All we have here is constant movement mm. and change, which is great. Yeah. We're never one thing for too long. Yes. It's it's so layered because I'm thinking of, I'm obviously thinking of my own family. I think anyone listening would be. But I'm also thinking of the fact that I, I, I do have children also. So there's, there's so creating, many layers to it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's what the book is about. It's like where you came from, but now maybe you're a parent. Now now you get to kind of, yeah. to set look, the culture. Th- there there could well be various therapy sessions needed <laughs> for both Carl and Cleon in the future. But I want to limit how much money they spend on therapy in the future (laughs) if they can Um, so let's talk about like let's talk about breaking the cycles a bit more because that can seem like such a scary step for people Mm. I know we've already spoken about it um, and it it is possible but how does somebody go from oh I see it I don't like it but how how the hell am I going to change how it? How do I avoid that compulsion to repeat? Well, yeah. First, I mean, that well, that's is, it. That's absolutely it. And that's it's the such, most important thing. Yeah, no, it is absolutely. And it's such a powerful thing. Mm. And you could underestimate the power of, the, of to repeat because you get you get cast in all these labels. And I would say the first thing is you have to identify it and look at it. And that's the genogram. Have a look at that and see, you know, what, what are the ideas you hold about yourself that you know are quite negative. In the book, at the end of every chapter, there's little tasks that ask you these questions. You know, what ideas would you like to think about yourself? What ones hold you back? And then I ask you to maybe write out some that you, you would like to say about yourself and now look for a couple examples of those during the course of your day. Because what you're doing there is you're, re- you're rewiring the brain. Neurons that fire together, wire together. This is neuroscience. That's how we think. Neuron fires. And the neural growth factor knits about that. That becomes a thought. Mm. And now I look around for confirmation bias. That becomes a pathway. And so if I think I'm stupid and a teacher gives me feedback that I'm not that bright, that becomes a pathway. A pathway means it's the only thought available. When I think about me as being clever, I'm stupid. That becomes a pathway, but you have to disrupt those. And so you can, you can. Yeah. I mean, they just knit, they just form. So thoughts just happen like that. And thoughts aren't facts. They're just things that happen as we're going around our daily life. We have 60 to 70,000 of those a day and 90% are what we thought yesterday. So we're constantly thinking in patterns, in familiar patterns. So if you develop very young that you're not that good, you're not that smart, people don't like me, whatever it is, I'm not that valuable. You'll think that for the rest of your life unless you get in there and disrupt it. And that's what I did. I mean, that's why that's why I put my own story in there. I certainly don't think that anymore, but I did for a long time, Sheila. Yeah. And I just disrupted it. I really got in there and I started to kind of like look look at things and start to think, how can I think more positively here? Especially when I started thinking about having kids, you know, how do, how do I change the pattern? Because I knew I could easily just be like my dad. I, could, I knew I could easily just drink heavily and be disillusioned with my life and, you know, not achieve much in my life and just kind of go on at that. I knew that was 
all of us have that potential. And um, and I just didn't want that. I just just made the decision. I you know I'm not I'm not what happened to me. I'm you know I'm, I'm yeah. kind of who I choose to be. And I just started to work my way out. And I always think it's like a tiny little tweak on a in, in like a, in a, you know a navigation. And you look back and say, like, how the hell did I get here? But they were all tiny little tweaks along the way. People think about changing like Everest. They think about summiting, you know, I have to be this now. It's not that at all. It's like make small little changes. And over the course of time, there'll be this massive change in your direction. You know, and people get, I think people fall down, and you know, where they think you have to be perfect straight away. I'm certainly not perfect now, right? Yeah. But that you have to be yeah. what you want to be. And I'm like, no, that takes time. Sure. What you have to do is work in the interest of future self. That's what I did when I was in my 20s. I was like, right, I'm going to work in the interest of something down the road. I'm not what I want to be now. Caught in some negative behaviors here. Do I want to be like this? And I just worked my way out of it so that those behaviors just eventually no longer part of my life or who I am or what I'm about. And I suppose then when when your kids go to do their own Mm. genogram, Genogram, it'll be be different. Remarkably different. And... I hope. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure. And well, it will. It will. And 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 I'm sure there'll be their their own little quirks because you know that's just life yeah, as well. Yeah. But um, when you're breaking a cycle, because you know it could be passed down from many ge- generations, mm. whatever the behaviour is or whatever it is that is not good, and maybe there's not even seen by others. But yeah. if one person starts to see it as a as a negative, um. I'm just, I, I don't know, it's more of a theory that I'm, I'm thinking right now. Surely there's a sense of a, of, of a generational healing thing happening mm. there where you're, you're basically, because if it was handed down, where does it begin with anyway? Exactly. And if we saw, this is a, a, absolutely, where did this thing start And if from? it hadn't been there at all or somebody had, you know, you're making that stance to stop you're, it. You're, you're, you're making the stance to stop and change this thing and not pass it forward and play it, pay it forward, whatever the yeah, phrase is. So that. carry a lo- the yeah. family line, no, exactly. but not bring the toxicity with it. Yeah, absolutely. And I talk about that there, about how to identify negative family legacies and how to identify positive ones. So for me personally, right, here's a kind of like an anecdote. Yeah. My father used to slam the door all the time. As a kid, it shook the marrow of my soul. The door would be like rocking on the on the hinges and you, you'd be a kid and the, the sound of that, like, yeah. you know what I mean? Often it was broken. The hinges of the thing were broken, right? And I remember the first time when my, myself and my wife, girlfriend at the time, lived together, we had an argument and I slammed the door and I remember just going oh my God, what the hell? And I was so, like, you know, she was, I could see her going, what are you, you know, why are you so upset about that? I was like, that is not who I want to be in my life. I do not want to bring that forward into my life. And I never did it since then. But, you know, it was just, it was a moment where yeah. there's a negative legacy, yeah. right? Positive legacies. My, my father was very anti-authority, right? And so, you know, school, don't bother about school, let's go to the beach. And so I carry that forward, I bring that legacy forward. And so I'm trying to get in the book, I'd say, you know, let's look for some positive legacies. Sure. Carry those forward because they're great things. Yeah. Let's look for some negative ones and let's remove those from your life because, you know, they just they just steal your ability to thrive. Yeah. You know, when you get into an argument with someone you, and you say terrible things to them. Um, yeah. How do you feel after that? Mm. You feel absolutely terrible. How about you remove that out of your life? Yeah. You know, when you get into an argument that you can manage it in a way that's healthy because yeah. we all have conflict and we all have... Moments where our cognition is hot and we're stressed and all that, but how about we don't demean each other in that and, and actually be respectful in an argument? That would be pretty good. How would you feel like about yourself after that? I'd feel pretty good after, about myself after that. Well, no, that's something to work for. Yeah, of course. You know? And we've no control over other people. Um, 
and how they respond to change or whatever. But if we if we start as individuals, anyone listening who mm. starts to do this work, if, if it's necessary, um, whether there's resistance or not, is there, I suppose what I'm trying to ask is, can there be a positive in this lifetime with those that are witnessing the change? As in whether it's siblings or parents or whoever it might be, can can there be a positive for them? Absolutely. I think all systems are capable of changing. And I think... There just needs to be willingness. There needs to be a little bit of willingness on the part of somebody to disrupt the homeostasis, the balance of it. And once that happens, the system will reorient itself. And I know I'm talking about systems as an abstract thing, but like say the family unit, the ecology that... It's you always looking for balance. It's always looking for balance. It is, it is continually in this fight for balance. So if one person pulls themselves out yeah. of the dynamic, it and can, I'm not playing this game anymore, yeah, exactly. lads, it's still going to try and find it will, its own It will try to again. find a new balance. And that's the key to understand that it will find new balance. They'll try to push you back to the where it was, because yeah. that's what's been going for a long time. But if you pull out and you stay the course, yeah, it will find a new balance. But if you stay out, and if it is a, a dysfunctional setup, and there, you know, there is the golden child or the, mm. the this, whatever, and yeah. and the, 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 you know, the black sheep. Will somebody else then become the black sheep over time? Well, it, it, well if the family needs that type of dynamic to exist, there, some, something will happen. Interesting. There, to it's take that so role. interesting. It's fascinating. It? You know, I mean, this is systemic theory. Huge I mean, work. It's, it's so interesting. When I was actually, when I was studying this and doing the theory, I was thinking every teacher needs to know this. Yeah. You know, and every family needs to hear this. And that's kind of like where I came to with it. Yeah. And I wrote a, I wrote a paper called uh, Systemic Practices in Education. And, and Trinity got onto me and said, would you do a PhD with us around inclusion and all that kind of stuff? I was like, okay, brilliant. I'd love that. And then I went off to America a couple of years ago, carrying out research with Fulbright. On, and it's just, it's just been such a passion over the years for me because we all get stuck in it, Sheila. We're all parts of families. And it can be very negative and we can get trapped with all the negative labels and labels I always say don't predict the future they absolutely write them and so when someone says you're wild like your daughter there or if you say that she's this or that and I'd say if you want your daughter to think of herself as a clever and smart talk about her like that when she's when you think she's not listening because she's always listening yeah and then you'd start writing the paradigms in her head I'm mom values me as smart mom va- mom thinks I'm really clever mom thinks because yeah. it can be because well, I, I do I do I know I know that I'm just saying hypothetically <laughs> because I got labeled as wild yeah and then I was like well this is my thing yeah. here by god I'm gonna yeah <laughs> I'm <know>. gonna step <laughs> I'm into gonna this. Run with this I'm gonna run with it yeah I love what you've written at the back here families are complicated even the air quotes normal ones <laughs> And it's refreshing and comforting, I think, to realise that the more we can have conversation like yeah. this, and obviously you're an expert. Um, but you see, there's a the thing, there's the, that is exactly why I wrote it, because experts often position themselves as this detached kind of almost like var, you know, looking down on everything and analysing everything and they're not a part of it. Whereas, you know, I'm an, uh, okay, I'm an expert. Okay, I'll take that. But I'm a human being and I've made loads of mistakes in my life. And, and you're speaking from experience. I'm speaking from experience. I don't get it right and I don't get it right still. And I'm trying to, as you said, be better and, yeah. and the rest of it. And I'm trying to, you that's know. That's all we can do though. That's all we can do. And that's why the book is trying to be honest and transparent rather than being, I could, I could have written it without my story in it and have it a nice little book about how to thrive but I was trying to show that the theory and practice through my own story. Yeah. And I think what you said there as well is important to say that, and it's not about demonizing people and, uh, you know, whether, whether we can resonate with what you're saying, there's positives and negatives in every situation. Yeah. And, 
You know, it's not all bad. And you know what? She has a massive message for people out there. A huge thing for me that helped me to forgive, let's say, a lot of things that went mm. on is that you see your the person who hurt you or who, who was negative in your life as a human being also who came out of their hurt and their mess. And when you see them like that, it's less, it's much more complicated because it's very easy to kind of go bad person, good person, right? We like to do those kind of things. But mm. when you see somebody coming out of what they had to deal with and my father had a difficult enough childhood and so you know and gives you compassion it, it, understand that this is a human being who struggled also yeah and and so we're all human beings who have uh, used different interventions maybe alcohol or whatever it is to soothe ourselves and once you do that then you get yourself caught in all sorts of things and you can really steal who you want to be in life and that's what i'm trying to get across that once you see that and you see where your parents came from, the person who, you know, who brought some negativity into your life, it frees you up. And a huge part is, is, is understanding that, that, that I, I think that allows you to move towards, I know it's got a lot of religious connotations, but forgiveness. Mm. And the moments you do that, I think you, free you, yourself, you are you? absolutely freed. You yeah. know, you, I, I, I know I'm not sober. I mean, obviously some of that stuff is there for me still. Um, and I did the audible for it and I got emotional sometimes when I was doing the audible because I was bringing up some of the personal stories but I've worked a lot of this stuff out and through forgiveness it's a huge thing and it unburdens you and it allows you to thrive oh it's like un- unpacking a lot of stuff that's holding you back you might not even know it's holding you back but um, it allows you to kind of like be unfeathered and unweighted there yeah. and move forward in your life and forgiving not just the behaviour but maybe perhaps sometimes others who might not be w- willing to see it or do the work involved to maybe make the change because you can't change anyone else. No. And often people don't want to change no, well, or won't even see it no, my, my, as my, something to change. Yeah, absolutely. And my father, I knew he was never going to say sorry about that, you know, that, or I don't know why it was. I knew that was never going to be a part of the conversation. Yeah. So if you're waiting for the sorry. Yeah. So you have to watch your expectations when mm. you go, if you are going in there, if that's what you're after, you mightn't get it. And so it might even deepen the thing. I wasn't looking for that. It would have been nice. There's no doubt about it. But I mean, I was, I remember watching the movie, The Warrior. I don't know if you've ever seen that. And Tom Hardy. Oh, yeah. And the sons are against Nick Nulty. And Nick Nulty was a bad, you know, difficult mm. father and all the rest of it. And Nick Nulty's trying to make, he's, you know, he's, he's contrite and he's coming back to his kids. And Tom Hardy says, you know, where were you when it mattered? And I, I felt myself really feeling for Nick Nulty, which was a weird one. I, I really felt for his position. And I think as I was analyzing, I was thinking, yeah, because that was never going to happen for me, you know? And, yeah. you know, and I, I just wanted them to heal that relationship so that when you hold all that stuff that Tom Hardy's character holds, you're always driven and, and you're always caught in this churn and you're always caught in that mess when you, you know, when you're you, hurting you, yourself you're hurt all the time and it's like forgiveness is such seeing the mess that people come from and seeing them as human beings is a huge step towards forgiving people yeah 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 fantastic Richards I would love to uh, record at least 10 more <laughs> podcasts yeah. with you thank you um, very much because I am very much looking forward to getting stuck into the book. As I said, this was a, a last minute into my hand. So I would have loved to have had more time to, to read it. So perhaps if I had read it cover to cover, I'd have a lot more questions yeah, for no you. Bother. But I think you've given us a really good sense of the book and what we might discover, what might help us if we're on that path. And I think it's going to help a huge amount of people. And I've taken so much from what you've said during this conversation. So thank you. Thank Thanks, you for what yeah. you're doing. No, thank you. I really appreciate it. Lovely talking to you. If you found this conversation useful, I explore similar themes in previous conversations with Jerry Hussey and Brother Richard if you want to check them out. And you can dive back into over 130 episodes of Ready To Be Real to keep you going over the summer as this is where I'll take a break. 
I'll be back in the autumn with a brand new selection of thought-provoking episodes. And as always, I am so grateful for all the love and the support that I get here. Have a gorgeous summer and thanks so much for listening to Ready To Be Real. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.